Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Welcome back to the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jia Kwan, a food and culture writer and author of Decolonizing Korean Food in Whetstone Magazine, Volume 11. It is an incredible article, perhaps one of our best received articles ever. And if you haven't yet had a chance to read, you can always subscribe at whetstonemagazine.com. But Jia and I are in discussion about the Korean dish, kimbap, and how many Korean dishes are often referred to as the Japanese version of the dish, which is to say, it's like sushi, but Korean. And that is in part due to Japan's occupation and colonization of Korea. And Jia and I are talking about how that occupation really impacted not only the food, but obviously the people. So she says, quote, Japan industrialized food, and it brought the West into the Hermit Kingdom, from building European-style department stores to making bread a more accessible part of food culture. As Korean agriculture and manufacturing were siphoned off to support Japan's military, both directly and indirectly, Koreans' access to their food began to change. Korean rice was exported to Japan. Canning factories were established to can fish and beer for Japan's use, and soy sauce was industrialized and made in a Japanese style. Jia and I talk about also something I was not expecting her to be so deeply knowledgeable about, which is K-pop, which is a subject I know very little about. And we talked about how music was influenced by the U.S. military and soldiers in Korea in the 1940s. And once again, just has me thinking about all of the ways in which origin foraging for the origins of our food, it takes us to unexpected places. Here's Gia. I am very excited to talk to you today. We wanted to talk to people who we've worked with, particularly on the print magazine side, mm -hmm. to give space for more context on the contributor. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, talking can be more expansive. So that's what we're here for. Celine likes to get the party started by us sharing a beverage together. Mm -hmm. I have some beverages in front of me. I'm flush with sure. beverages. <laughs> I feel like you should always have more than one. Definitely. Hydration is key. <laughs> I currently only have one, unfortunately. Um, it's just coffee because it's 10 in the morning here and it's time for coffee. But I do really like this bread, knowing coffee supply. Oh, and um, yeah. I particularly really like the mocha beans. They get them like once or twice a year, I think. But because okay. I tend to like, like chocolatey, warmer notes in my coffee, this really hits all the spots. So... Yeah. So the Nguyen coffee, I've not yet had it, I should say that. But I did just become aware of the brand because of Expo West. Awesome. I was reading a lot about it because, you know, it's like especially first gen or immigrant entrepreneurs doing mm -hmm. really food products from their respective places of origin or cultures. And so I saw this coffee and I was actually first struck by how tight the packaging was. I was mm -hmm. right. Like, it's beautiful. Yeah. I really like them. I'm glad to see them expanding. And um, they do a lot for raising awareness for, like, Vietnamese coffee beans. Totally. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm also drinking coffee. And because I'm in New Orleans, 
I had a lot to drink last night. So I'm also drinking green juice. Mm -hmm. So I'm doubly hydrated. Okay, Gia, well, let's jump into a conversation. I know you from your extraordinary contribution to Whetstone Magazine, Volume 11, Decolonizing Korean Food, I think archetypal in the kind of work we hope to publish that shows the expansiveness of a single dish. And you do a really interesting job of telling that story in particular through this like colonial lens, right? And the role of colonialism and occupation Mm -hmm. in what we eat. So I do want to talk to you about this article, but first I want to talk to you about your grandparents Mm -hmm. who you mentioned in the article kind of passingly, but in giving you an awareness about your own history and about the history of Japanese occupation in Korea. So can you tell me a little bit about them and just what those conversations were like as an impressionable young person? So I did grow up with my paternal grandparents. My paternal grandmother raised me when I was young. Both my parents were working. They both passed and I wish I'd gotten more stories from them when they were both living. But I do know that I think at a certain point, my grandfather did work in Tokyo for a period. And it always kind of struck me as a little interesting that my grandmother could watch Japanese TV, no subtitles. They grew up during the occupation. So they would have grown up speaking Japanese, reading Japanese, and and then they lived through the war. It's only like as I've gotten older and started doing my own research and started learning more about history and kind of specifically the history of 20th century Korea that I've started to piece it together. I mean, you know, I'm the same way. I grew up as a a Black boy in Georgia. There are things that make sense as a grown person, as I've done Mm -hmm. my own reading, but disconnected from the the game and the wisdom that we get from our grannies and our elders Mm -hmm. at a young age, like it's the the coloring. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about jimbap. Am I saying that correctly? Kimbap. Kimbap. Kim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bap. Mm -hmm. So... Literally translated as seaweed rice is a rice roll Mm -hmm. that is filled and rolled in a sheet of gym or seaweed and bears Mm -hmm. physical resemblance to sushi rolls. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this is notable is that you're extrapolating this dish as a way to talk about something that's really annoying in food culture broadly when someone says it's like the blank version of this. Yes. Right. So can you talk about this dish? First of all, what is it? Composition, mm-hmm. the history, and then just kind of your general annoyance, you know, food being reduced to mm-hmm. the blank of this. So um, kimbap is, it does literally mean seaweed rice because kim is seaweed and pap is rice. So usually you make it by, you have like a square of seaweed, you put on a thin layer of seasoned rice. In kimbap, we season it with sesame oil, salt, and sesame seeds which is one key difference from sushi. Sushi, rice is vinegar, sugar. And then you do that and then you have fillings. So usually it's pretty balanced. Like your perfect kimbap is going to be a very balanced bite where you get some protein, you have fresh vegetables. Usually there's an egg, there's um, a pickled radish to bring in some brightness. So typically if you were looking at like super traditional kimbap, you might see like fish cake, carrots, sauteed spinach, pickled radish, and egg, like a rolled omelet kind of thing. And then you take that and then you roll it 
up. So that is typically a kimbap. And when you talk to Koreans, like there's a lot of nostalgia attached to kimbap because it's the thing that we pack for like road trips or like school trips or like lunch boxes. So there's usually that kind of memory component that like, you know, when you go somewhere like your mom gets up early and makes kimbap and then that's what you eat when you get to your destination or whatever. Mm. So it has a lot of like meaning and like emotion attached to it. You do hear a lot that like when people try to do a very simple explanation of kimbap, it's like, oh, it's like Korean sushi, you can know raw fish or something like that. And it's not just kimbap. I feel like the general annoyance is that a lot of Korean food in general is just juxtaposed with something Japanese. Like, you know, we have a soybean paste called puenjang that people like to call Korean miso when it's like uh, they kind of they're both soybean based, but they are very different ingredients. And, you know, one of the things that, as I alluded to, that you mentioned is that in some ways it kind of makes sense that we can be this reductive given the geography and given the history of Korea as a peninsula that was already inward mm -hmm. or certainly focusing on just trade with China and Japan. So I think the analogy that was made was like someone comparing New York and New Jersey. Mm -hmm. like lots of differences as anyone from New York or Jersey mm -hmm. would like to tell you. Let's talk about your foray into food writing, mm -hmm. which I'm curious about. So obviously food culture, this becomes a vessel of self-exploration, cultural identity, et cetera. Was this always the way that you thought about food? Or I guess I should ask, at what point did you start to look at food and food writing as a way to explore your own cultural identity? I was always interested in food and I was always writing. I would say probably in two layers. The first was that I was born in New York, but I grew up in LA near K-Town. And then I moved to Brooklyn in 2012. So that made me think actually more about Korean food because I was no longer in LA's K-Town, which has an abundance of Korean food and like really good Korean food. So it was really when I moved to New York and suddenly didn't have that. And like, it's not that there isn't Korean food in New York. It's just that traditional Korean food is still so much better in LA. Yeah, And then like not having access to that was kind of the first shift of like actually thinking about what am I eating? What am I craving? What am I cooking? And like, what are these ingredients? That's kind of when the first mental shift started to take place. And then I think in terms of like really thinking about it in terms of food writing, it really started maybe 2018, 2019, because I feel like in 2016, there's a restaurant called Her Name is Han that opened in New York, in Manhattan. It's like traditional Korean food, but there is like a little bit of a twist on it to make it kind of more Korean American-y. And then so like that kind of made me rethink what I thought about Korean American food. And then Attaboy opened in New York mm. and they play with panchan, which are Korean side dishes, and they put a totally different spin on it. And then Kawi opened in 2018. And then that restaurant really made me think about Korean American food and like how that ties into identity. So that kind of was, as I, I went to Kawi a lot and the chef there, Unjafar, like her food really made me think about how I tied what I was eating, what I was craving into what does this tell about our story as Korean Americans. Mm -hmm. And then that's also around the time when I finally started publishing writing and started getting into food writing. I guess my take on the kind of food writing I want to do is, is to explore Korean Americanness. What is modern Korean food? How is it evolving? And what does that say about who we are within the diaspora? Totally. I have a, a very deep love 
for Korean people. I have a lot of homies who are Korean. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a, if I may, a special quality that comes from being, you know, a resilient population that has dealt with colonialism and the culture and the creativity that is born from that environment. I feel like these populations of people wear that and become that. And what comes from that is in how that's reflected back into the world and in culture is something really beautiful. It reminds me of my background as a, as a psalm, as a wine person, thinking about rocky soils or poor soils mm -hmm. as a place to grow the best grapes from that stress. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, though, even more broadly, that it's happening in a moment where Korean culture is being celebrated, mm -hmm. obviously, in cinema and in Hollywood. So over these last few years, I wonder how you've observed this concurrent rise or what I'm calling a rise mm -hmm. in an interest in Korean food culture and Korean culture more broadly. Can you talk about like the relationship and your feelings on it? Um, I agree. I think there's been a a, a rise in the last few years, especially like in a in a more market way, especially like in terms of like you said, Hollywood, in terms of K-pop. And then I think there is a growing interest in food. And I think in general, I've seen more curiosity beyond like Korean barbecue. I feel like for right. for a yeah. long time, that's all people would know when it comes to Korean food. But yeah. I think there's definitely more openness and more curiosity to like try new things. Sometimes like I go to Whole Foods, I'm like, wow, people are making their own kimchi. Like that's right. <laughs> how far we've come. <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah. Or like we can tell by Trader Joe's, like Trader Joe's like apparently now is selling their own gochujang. Yeah, it, it's been interesting. <laughs> what about this moment that we're in and, and with respect to your work still feels incomplete or off or, or not aligned. Because sometimes what happens is when you are part of a culture that has been on the sidelines, mm -hmm. right? When you start to move into the light and your culture starts to move into the light, on the one hand, you're like, okay, you know, we, we are here for this recognition that is mm -hmm. overdue. But then sometimes it creates a sense of like, mm, but y'all are missing this other important context, right? Like mm -hmm. there is a kind of gap in understanding. I wonder like as you're seeing Korean food culture, Korean culture more broadly come into the light, mm -hmm. are there things that we're missing that still feel incomplete that you wished we had broader context on? Mm -hmm. I think I'm always mentally yelling that we need more context. And I see that especially within... Within K-pop, I guess talking about Korean culture at large, I feel like there's a tendency to like want to make unicorns out of things. Like I guess like with BTS, you know, because they're so big. But for me, I'm constantly like, you need to contextualize. They didn't come out of nowhere. They're not. You can't remove them from the greater K-pop industry. That context matters. There's 30 years of K-pop as we know it today. Mm. This is actually an enormous blind spot for me. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about K-pop, its history. So I, I would love to, some context. Mm -hmm. And BTS, I do know, mm -hmm. is like the IT band, yes. right? I, I know that. But what is the history? Mm -hmm. And if this didn't come out of nowhere, where did it come mm -hmm. from? 
I'm actually learning a little bit more about the real origins of K-pop as I, I learned recently. There was a huge amount of Western influence. K-pop has historically taken a lot from hip-hop culture. There are many issues that we need to talk about when it comes to like racism in K-pop, when it comes to a lot of cultural appropriation that was really, really gross and is honestly still kind of ongoing. It's not all good. <laughs> but as I learned recently, like apparently there was this one club in Itaewon, which is kind of the more international neighborhood in Seoul because there was so much like military presence in Korea mm -hmm. and so apparently it was it was a black American club where a lot of like African Americans would go because you know to, to party and there are like three main entertainment companies in Korea and so like they got a lot of influence from this one club as I recently learned and so we did see a lot of that and that's kind of where it came from like that was what made K-pop so new was when the western influences came in and then SM launched HOT, which is considered to be the first boy band in K-pop. And there are always like certain members. You always have like the main vocal, you have the main rapper, the main dancer, you have the one from America who speaks English. <laughs> like you have like the, the visual. So like everyone has like a role. It's very like regimented. Yeah. And so it's been like 30 years of, of this. Wow. That is so interesting to me. I mean, I guess I never really thought about the mechanics of mm -hmm. K-pop and, and how they put a band together. We were talking so much about Japanese occupation. Mm -hmm. You never even really get into our role in this whole thing yeah. and Korea being split up in ways that obviously are still impacting the country today. And actually you, you mentioned part of this, I guess is the food component um, U.S. soldiers leaving chocolate and cigarettes mm -hmm. behind. Can you talk more about just the role of U.S. troops and, and occupation? And obviously mm -hmm. we see the relationship to K-pop, but how that all unfolded. Mm -hmm. The Japanese colonials ended when World War II ended and Japan lost the war. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and so this is like 1945. 1945, basically kind of the divide happened because the Soviet Union and the U.S. kind of recognized that Korea, even though it's a tiny peninsula, was a stepping stone into the rest of Asia. So strategically, I guess the location was key. And so they did split it. And then we had the Korean War, which was fought between the communists and between the U.S. And so the U.S. military presence has been strong on the southern half of the peninsula and continues to be to this day. And back then, Korea was super poor, didn't have food. My dad has stories of, you know, that he would see soldiers around and they would give them like chocolate and candy. And I think the U.S. brought in Spam, which has influence like Pudechige, which is a dish that a lot of Koreans have nostalgia for because it's just it's like it's Spam. It's instant ramen and like in a spicy gochujang soup broth there's hot dog in it so it's like all these like processings kind of i think came in through the u.s military and going back to your earlier question of where do i feel like we're lacking or like there's kind of a void i feel like it's like okay to talk about japanese colonialism and the impact of that occupation on korean like cuisine on culture at large but i feel like it's a little bit harder to talk about the other layer of colonialism which is western imperialism and like the u.s military conflict because the U.S. military is still on the Korean Peninsula. There are still bases around, so it's still an ongoing thing, but that aspect we don't talk so much about. Oh, we definitely struggle to look in the mirror now. We mm -hmm. struggle to do that. That's definitely yeah. not our strong suit. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And 
makes sense. I mean, basically we're there for the same reasons today, right? Mm -hmm. So like in the middle of the 20th century, after this war, there's processed foods going off. I mean, this is part of the industrialization that's happening Mm -hmm. in the U.S. too. And so we're not only getting moms out of cooking for their families, Mm-hmm. But we start to export processed foods and use mm-hmm. the military to do it. It's a very wild way of distribution. Mm-hmm. But like, this is what happens, though. You know, you see the same thing with Native people, with mm-hmm. Black people, mm-hmm. you know, like taking what's been given by the government for various mm-hmm. reasons and then like owning it and saucing it up, you know, mm-hmm. that's a complicated history. But it's real shit, you know, and it's and it's interesting. So now we understand, I guess, a little bit more broadly about the role of Black American soldiers mm-hmm. in Korea. What are you, I guess, reading and consuming around either K-pop or the relationship about colonial mm-hmm. cuisine and mid-century Korea? So I'm currently working on a book about K-pop. Um, so I've been deep into that. <laughs> wow, I we should have been talking about K-pop. This <laughs> oh, I'm trying to bring in like food elements into that, but that's been a little bit of a challenge. But <laughs> I was about to say, what is there a relationship? I mean, Koreans love food, so there's always food. Um, but I think I have something in there about like kimchi, like learning to make my own kimchi and like tying that into K-pop. Yeah. So because I've been, I, I need to file that manuscript at the end of the year. So I've been kind of deep in that and trying to learn to do more like Korean language research, which is a challenge. Like I can read it. It's just my reading is very slow and research is, is tricky. Yeah, no. I'm actually going to Korea in April and hoping to do more like food research. I've been to Korea maybe like a collective five weeks my entire life. I have actually never done that much eating. So I'm looking forward to being there and yeah. hoping to just try different foods, kind of see how the food scene has changed there. And hopefully my passion project, I guess, is, is soju, like artisanal soju, where a lot of the traditional brewing methods are coming back. Even though we know like the green bottle soju, that I think that's what everybody knows, which came about actually because of the post-war when Korea was in a state of famine and the Korean government actually illegalized the use of rice for anything that wasn't food consumption. Mm-hmm. And soju and Korean alcohol is traditionally made from rice. And so they only turned that law around, I think, right before the 88 Olympics. So it's only since then that people have started to brew soju again with rice. So that's my my big thing for when I'm there. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about is, and this is kind of like, I feel kind of like a simp for asking you this, but I can't resist. As a person who's been bi-coastal for such a large part of your life, L.A. and New York, mm-hmm. undeniably two of the best food cities on earth. Yes. Also the source of a lot of contention about who really has it better. And I'm not necessarily <laughs> asking you to like get on my level of simping with that question, uh-huh. but I am curious just like the parts that you love or don't love so much about those two mm-hmm. food cities. I think. LA is still more accessible. 
I mean, so is New York, actually. New York is not necessarily as expensive as people think it is. You can, I think you can eat fairly well. Um, That's actually um, mm-hmm. a hill that I'm willing to die on. You can eat cheaply in New York. Yes, but I think with LA, you just kind of get a broader range of Asian. Yeah. Like, there's really great Vietnamese, there's really great Thai food, there's great Korean, Chinese, Japanese, like, there's just... There's great Indian food. You just get a very wide range, I feel, at very, like, accessible prices. Mm -hmm. And I think L.A. definitely thrives on the traditional side of things. There are things you cannot get in New York (laughs) that you can get in L.A., like rice cakes. My big sticking point currently against New York, I cannot find good rice cakes. Rice cake entrepreneur out there. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, somebody should jump on this. And also, you cannot find good Mexican food in New York. I'm sorry. Like whenever people try to argue that like X place makes good tacos in New York, I'm just like, if you're not from California, you don't have an opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I mean, I don't think that's that controversial of an opinion. If there is some outstanding Mexican restaurant in New York, I don't mean any disrespect, but I just don't know you and I've never met you. And um, until we meet, I think this is an opinion that I also share in. No, I think that's real. I think one of the things that I've learned from living in California, I was in Northern California for over a decade, though, is Californians are deeply spoiled with the breadth of Asian cuisine that we have access to. And yeah, ooh, I do miss that about being there. Parting shot, last thing. What is the best thing you've had to eat in the last week? Um... Attaboy is a restaurant in, in New York and they have several restaurants and they recently opened a place called Nato in the Rockefeller Center, um, which terrible. I hate the Rockefeller Center, but they hey, recently it's opened a restaurant. a big comeback right now, though. It is because they're getting all these people to come in, including this team. But Nato is probably one of my favorite restaurants currently okay. and i will say like with new york like i i do love dining in new york because i feel like a lot of the really exciting korean american cooking is happening in new york because it's not so tied to this idea of the traditional because um like la k-town is such a big part of la but in new york like because there isn't that like really strong hub like you see a lot of innovation so i i love Korean food in new york and nato is one of them where um they take a lot from like korean flavors and like ingredients and so they have a dish called and so what it is it's a base of acorn jelly and then on top it's like julienne vegetables like bell peppers cucumber i think cucumber don't quote me on this there's bell peppers on like other vegetables and then there's like a, a chojang sauce so it's kind of like a it's like a very savory i hate the word umami but i will say it's like yeah. umami <laughs> i hate that word sauce yeah, it's like fresh, it's savory, and it has the acorn jelly, which I love. All right. Noted for New York. Um, Jia Kwan, I had a great time talking to you. Um, I'm really grateful for your contributions um, in life. Definitely everyone should check out her great work in Whetstone 11, Decolonizing Korean Food. Um, where else can we find you? Uh, we know to be looking out for your book on K-pop in a couple of years. So we already got that. But where, where else um, are you working on and where can people find you and support? 
I feel like on the internet, I'm mostly active on Instagram. My food account is Jungie Eats, like J J O O N G I E Eats, which the Jungie is also a K-pop reference. But that's usually where I am, or my main account is just Jungie. So. Thank you again for making time for me. Very grateful. Thank you for having me and for having me in the piece. I was very excited to have the piece accepted. I wasn't sure if a magazine would be willing to fight on it, and you did. So I'm very grateful for that. Grateful. Thank you to executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kovalchuk, editor Ilgen Kordigan, and associate producer Quentin LeBeau. Special thank you to music composer Catherine Yang for all of the music that you heard on this episode and Alexandra Bowman for the outstanding cover art. You can follow us and learn more about Whetstone Media at our website, whetstonemedia.com or on Instagram and YouTube at Whetstone Media. We'll be back next week. 